If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And if you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And it's always fun to listen to the word of God, but we get to absorb even a little bit more as we read it and listen to it as well. So Sunday mornings through the Bible, uh, not through the Bible, but the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come to this wonderful chapter in John's gospel, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Our Savior is speaking and he says, in fact, not just speaking, but praying. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will receive, who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me. I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray together. Father, we love everything about you. We love everything about our Savior. And we just counted a privilege this morning to be able to In fellowship with your Holy Spirit, look into this prayer of Jesus as it reveals to us, Lord, uh, in a way that prayer so often does, the deepest streams in our hearts and in our lives and in our thinking. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear your voice and to hear Jesus' heart and his voice as we study your word this morning. Be very, very active in our midst, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, we pray we've come to hear from you. And so speak to us, Lord, continue to fashion our lives after your image, Lord, and for your glory, our thinking, our feeling, our doing, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is praying with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus, as wasn't that common with him, he prayed this particular prayer in John chapter 17 out loud. And he prayed this this prayer out loud, not so that the Father would hear the prayer, but so that his disciples, his followers, would hear the prayer. And in hearing the prayer, learn something as a result. The Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, takes this prayer that Jesus prayed on that night before this horrible, wonderful cross that's going to unfold the next day, and he includes it in God's Word. So that 2,000 years later, we can hear that same prayer of Jesus that is a prayer that he is lifting up not just 2,000 years ago, but he's lifting up for us today. And the prayer is included in the word in order that we would learn something about Jesus, about what's most important to him in life, what's most important to him about our lives as a result of eavesdropping on the prayer. And so this is why it's in the book. And as we've studied through this, I mean, in Hebrews chapter seven, it tells us that the Lord ever lives to make intercession for us. He's praying for us right now. He's praying for you right now. He's praying for me right now. You see, once a person understands that as a Christian, I think the very next thing we think about is, well, what is he praying for if he's praying for me? I mean, that's the sanctified curiosity related to it. 
And the passage reveals that to us. He prayed that the Father would be actively involved in our sanctification, our holiness, and making us like Christ. He prayed that the Father would be actively involved in keeping us, protecting us as Christians. Because in this fallen world as Christians, we face a lot of of natural danger, but there's a lot of spiritual danger that's present in the world as well. And we have enemies in this world as Christians that nobody else has. We're in need of keeping. We're in need of safekeeping. Jesus then prayed that the Father would be actively involved in maintaining a life and an attitude and a spirit of joy. Just because so much is working against us as Christians in the fallenness of this world, Jesus does not, did not, does not want to be known as the leader of a bunch of joyless people, joyless disciples. He does not want to be known in this world by believers or unbelievers as the head of some joyless religion. And so he prays that no matter what we face, that God would be involved to keep our joy alive in those circumstances. And then finally, for our purposes this morning, he prayed that the Father would be supernaturally involved in producing oneness or unity among his followers in this world. And this issue of unity among ourselves as Christians is so important to Jesus that it's a part of his ongoing prayer for us. So clearly, Jesus does not want to be known in this world as the head of some kind of a splintered, fragmented, constantly in conflict with one another group of people or religion in this world. That's not what he's about. That's not what the Father's about. That's not what they were intended to establish in this world. And it's not what they want to be known for. And Jesus doesn't want what he is the head of in this world to be known for that. And so Jesus's prayer, verse 21, for us is to be one. He said that they, speaking of us, all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, Why would Jesus need to pray this prayer to the Father in terms of our unity and oneness as Christians, except that there must be a natural tendency toward disunity and conflict in even in the lives of Christians in personal relationships in this world? That there's just a natural attraction to that, that there's a natural pull in that direction. And so and so that's the reason behind him offering this this prayer, because without the Holy Spirit's involvement, that's where we go. There's a famous story. I don't often tell stories in sermons that doesn't make me better than other people uh, or worse. But. This one I've always liked from the first time that I heard it. And there's a famous old story of a man who was rescued from a deserted island after having uh, been shipwrecked on the island for many years. And as he stood on the deck of the ship that had uh, rescued him and it was pulling away from the island, the captain said to him, I thought you were stranded alone on this island. How come I see three huts on the beach? Well, the castaway said, that one there is my house, and that one there is where I go to church. And the skipper said, and the third one, he said, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) We don't even need other people to be in conflict. I mean, there's conflict inside of us. On what we're feeling or we're thinking or being on a given day in a... It's a funny joke. I really like it. But you know the truth about humors. The best humor has large elements of truth in it. And and we see it. We see it in ourselves. And that's why we laugh at it. But it's also tragic in in, in, in reality. I, I like very much how our friend Bill McDonald, who is now with the Lord, put it. He 
He said, there is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church or any other work of God. And therefore, we must submerge our own petty personal whims and attitudes and work together in peace for the glory of God and for common blessing. There is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church or any other work of God. And it's tragic, but it is true. Now, we think of all of the things that can work against our unity as Christians. And I think it's good to think about that. We're going to talk in a moment about the things that that, uh, uh, work for our unity. But it's good to stop and think about how much is working against our unity as Christians and in the unity of the body of Christ. I think of, first of all, the great diversity of the body of Christ worldwide. In the book of Revelation, there are many songs that are listed in there um, that are are listed that we some of which we are going to sing to God once we are in that heavenly scene. But one of the songs that's uh, recorded there is recorded in Revelation chapter five. And and here's how it goes. The context before we lead up to it. Now, when he that is, Jesus had taken the scroll from the hand of the father, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Here it is. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And because the Lord saves people, From among all of the broad diversity of mankind, he faces the challenge of, number one, uniting all of that diversity, and then, number two, keeping all of that diversity united. And it's no small challenge. The body of Christ is made up of different races. In fact, it's made up of every race represented in this world. It's made up of people who speak different languages. It's made up of different nations and nationalities, different cultures, different sexes, male and female. It's made up of people of every age, those that are young, those that are old, everyone in between. And the issue of race alone keeps our nation and the world splintered and in conflict to say nothing of nationalism and all the rest of it, we experience on a daily basis how divided our world is on differences related to even one item in that list, much less the task of taking people who come from all different directions related to all of those things, making us a part of the same family and then keeping us together is quite a challenge. Then there's the great diversity of personality represented in the body of Christ. People have different likes and dislikes about everything. We come to Christ, some of us, from very, very different backgrounds. Very different educational backgrounds, very different uh, households we were raised in in childhoods. We come from uh, very, very uh, different life experiences. We have different interests as people. Each of us has a different way of looking at things. You've got different personality types. You've got introverts. You've got extroverts. You've got the natural, naturally shy. You've got the guy that is the proverbial bull in the china shop that knocks ten people over before he realizes, you know, what he's done. And all this broad diversity of personality can lead to personality conflicts. And sometimes it takes a while to appreciate the diversity of personality in the body of Christ. I would hate it if everyone in the world were just like me. I mean, you're tempted to think you'd like it for five minutes. 
But I wouldn't wish me on anybody. I'm just like you. I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror, and as the old saying goes from the comic strip Pogo that Gail Irwin has made famous, I have met the enemy. I'm going to fight that guy all day today for the rest of the day. And so I like the fact that there's all kinds of different people in the body of Christ. And sometimes early on in our walks, you know, you... Certain kinds of people can really aggravate uh, you until you realize that, wow, that kind of person is desperately needed in the body of Christ. You think this guy is the most insensitive, pig-headed kind of person that there could be. Where in the world was he when sensitivity and some sense of decorum was handed out and all? And, and why doesn't God change this guy? And he's the kind of guy or the kind of gal that if you point them in a direction to run through that block wall, they'll run through the block wall. You say, that guy drives me crazy. But who else is going to go to the other side of the earth and start a church? Who else is going to have the faith to just bust through some kind of stronghold of the enemy that's been held for generations? And the rest of us, we come alongside after the hole's been busted through the wall and we have our place of cleaning up the mess a little bit. Little damage gets done on things, but we got a breach in the wall. Now we're moving forward in how our personality works in the whole picture. And we come to realize we need all of it in the mix. But we can get on one another's nerves a little bit, too. At the same time, while we're coming to appreciate all of that. And then there are our imperfections. We are imperfect. Every Christian is. Don't gasp. We are imperfect human beings this side of heaven. Every Christian is. And so because of that, we're going to fall short. One another's lives. We're going to sin against one another. Try as you might. Try as I might, sooner or later, some dumb thing is going to come out of our mouth. Then we're going to walk away five minutes later and go, uh-oh, now I realize how that's going to be taken. And we realize we've just pulled the legs out from under somebody. Or we go and we try as we might, we want to be a blessing to everyone, that we, but we do something that ends up hurting somebody. And it's just going to happen. That's just the reality of things, this side of heaven. And people will sin against you. People will sin against me. It's the package deal. It's just the way that it works. If you think Christians are perfect this side of heaven, then you've got expectations that are going to set you up to be about the most bitter person in the whole world. That's not what we are. We will fall short in our interactions with one another in the body of Christ. It's just the way that it is, this side of glory. And then there's pride sometimes in the body of Christ. I think about that church at Corinth. And here you had one group of Christians who saw themselves as superior to all of the other Christians because they had a spiritual gift that the others didn't have and and uh, so on this basis of, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they had divided and had the sense of superiority. And I don't know, we could go and talk about all these things that work against our unity as Christians. And so the question is raised. How then does unity occur in the midst of such diversity? And I would contend in the midst of absolutely unique diversity. In the human condition known as the body of Christ. And Jesus gives us here in his prayer some of the keys to unity. Notice number one in verse 27. Jesus prays that they, speaking of us, may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now, that's quality of unity. That they also may be one in us. And I want you to make note of that. That they also may be made, they may be one in us. In other words, the unity of the Father and Jesus is a spiritual unity. It's not a unity based upon some physical something, but it's based upon possessing a common nature, 
a common character, a common moral likeness, common purposes, common goals. Notice also that indwelling is the secret of Christian unity. The Father dwells in Jesus. Jesus dwells in the Father. Jesus dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, and we are all united as a result of it. Now, some of our heads may be swimming at this particular point on this. So how do we achieve unity in the body of Christ among Christians? We, will, we, we do so not, absolutely not, by becoming outwardly uniform in some physical way. And that's always the tendency is to become unified where somebody could just look at us outwardly and say, there's a Christian. That's not how you produce unity. Unity is occurs by becoming unified as a result of possessing a common nature. A common character. Common moral likeness. Possessing common goals, possessing common purposes, which we possess from God. It occurs as we individually become more and more like Christ. This unity is a byproduct of all of us getting in tune with Jesus. Now, let's say... We had a band of ten guitarists uh, backstage. What's that? They've got a musical group with a bunch of guitarists. That, are they the singing gypsies or the gypsies or what? What are they? The Gypsy Kings. So I just saw them. Uh, I looked at them on YouTube singing Volare the other day. Somebody had mentioned them. I wanted to see what they were up to. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Gypsy Kings. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are ready for something like that to happen at this point. I'm not nearly done. Don't you get excited about that. But let's say you had ten guitarists backstage and they're ready to come out and do a concert for us. And each of them are in their own individual room. And one of the great concerns that they would have before they came out would be that their guitars would be uh, in tune with one another. Let's say they're in an individual rooms and they can't come together to tune off of one another. And that's not what they need to do anyway. But if each of them tuned off of the same tuning fork and the room that they were in, then when they came out on the stage as a byproduct of that tuning off of the same instrument, they would then find themselves perfectly in tune on the stage. And it says we make Christ the supreme focus and model of our lives. We tune our lives to him. We tune our minds. We tune our thinking. We turn our emotions, our hearts, our lives, our doing, our attitudes to him. That as we do that, then without doing any kind of artificial means of keeping us unified, we will discover as God could put any five of us or ten of us or two of us or two thousand of us anywhere in the world, and we're going to be in tune with one another because we're tuned with him toward his purposes. And it's all a byproduct of us just individually making Christ the supreme focus and model of our lives and then our lives automatically come into tune with one another and will live and will serve harmoniously. Sometimes in marriage counseling, um, uh, through the years, I've used an illustration that, I don't know, I got from somebody. I don't have a lot of original thoughts. When I do, I'm so impossible to live with for four weeks. But but there, there's sometimes you get a husband and wife come in, and here you have just two people that you're trying to keep unified. I mean, we're not talking about the broad diversity that exists in all of mankind. We're just talking about diversity represented in two people. But they have different personalities. They have different interests. They have different ways of looking at things. And this marriage looks like it's going nowhere. And because there's just it appears to them that there's just too much that's operating. They're just too different to come together. This is not going to work. How in the world can we grow together with so much difference in our life? 
And the classic illustration is, is of a triangle where you put Christ at the top. You put the wife over here on this corner. You put the husband over here on this corner. And you just explain to him that as you each individually grow more and more like Christ, you will work your way up that arm of that triangle. And as a byproduct, you will grow closer to one another. And that's true of any relationship in the body of Christ. As we grow closer to Christ, all of these things that would normally separate us, aggravate us, divide us, all of these, they begin to fall by the wayside as we mature, becoming more and more like uh, the Lord. And so it's when Christian lives get out of tune with Jesus that most division and conflict occurs. This is very important to understand. It's been helpful for me, so I assume it will be for you. Unity in the body of Christ. True unity. Not this other stuff. True unity. I want, we need true unity. God unity. The body of Christ. It's a byproduct. It's a by, You can't do a program. I can't, I can't do a unity program in this church. You can't do one in the community. You can't do one to, in, nationwide or worldwide. It's a byproduct of Christians tuning off of the same tuning fork and tuning our lives off of Jesus. Notice Jesus said in verse 21 that they would be one in us. What he's saying there is we become one as we become more and more like our God. Now, number two in this keys to unity, notice another way to stay unified or united is by remembering all of the amazing things that we have in common with other Christians. Got all this diversity in the body of Christ. Praise the Lord for all of it. But the things that God has given to us in Christ, the things that we have in common as Christians are infinitely greater and more powerful and more awe-inspiring than any of the things that would divide us. He's given us far greater things than all of the differences and things that would tend to splinter us and divide us. He's given us to unify us. And I always think about Paul's passage that he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 when he was speaking of the same subject of Christian unity. And let me read it to you. He said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beg you, please. To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What's that look like? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then it comes. He says something next that almost seems disjointed if we don't understand what he's saying. He said, there's one body. In one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We are all one body. Every single Christian is a part of the body of Christ. I don't care what church they attend. I don't care where in the world they live. If they've put their faith in Christ, they're a part of the body of Christ. Calvary Chapel Modesto started 25 years ago. The Lord started it up. Well, we weren't the first church in town with Calvary in the name. There's another church in town called Calvary Temple. So Calvary Temple had kind of the claim on Calvary. They might still have it to this day for 25 years. And to this day, just happened two or three weeks ago where I was in an office and kind of doing a deal and writing. You got to write who you're employed by Calvary Chapel, Modesto and everything. Oh, so you you pastor at Calvary Temple. So the mix up is always going on. So I say, yeah, yeah, I do send the bill. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. They'll be happy to. They love us over here. The the accountant will take care of, you know, I'm sure that 
the whole body scan didn't cost that much anyway. But sometimes people will say that, and I, and I have to say, no, um, it's Calvary Chapel. And I'll say, Calvary Temple is a different church, but it's the same team. The same team. And, and that we're the same body. Paul said, we're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwells me, and it's important for us to remember that, indwells every other believer for all of our differences. And he loves to indwell that believer as much as he loves to indwell me. And sometimes I've got to stop to think about that because I think the whole world revolves around me. Most of the time, we share the same hope of our calling. We have the same destiny. We all have the same hope of heaven, the confidence of heaven that resides in our hearts after this life. We share one Lord. We share the same Lord Jesus. They call him Lord just the way that I call him Lord. And he loves to be called Lord by them as much as he loves to be called Lord by me. And so there's that realization that we share our Lord with every other believer in this world. One of the things I love about a trip to Israel, and there's a lot of things to love about a trip to Israel, but to go to these different sites, there's always Christians in Israel from all over the world. I mean, they're provoking the Jews to jealousy in their relationship with the Lord. But you go to these sites and you're going to have a church from Korea and you're going to have a church from Ecuador and you're going to have a church from Russia and you're going to have a church from uh, somewhere in Africa. I mean, the whole it's just all this people just praising the Lord all in the same place. And I just love to to watch it and love to see all of that going on. You marvel at the diversity and I always am impacted by it and it always warms my heart to see their faith, to see their love for God. And I just think about how much for all of our differences that we have in the body of Christ, I think about how hard God works all day, every day to keep us unified. This is one of the things I marvel about almost on a daily basis. One of the things, biggest things I marvel about is that God, there's six, what, six billion people on the planet now I lose track. But God is working to reach every single man, woman and child morning, noon and night and to bring them into a knowledge of his son and to bring them to faith. He never stops, never takes five minutes off, not in the morning, not in the afternoon, not in the middle of the night. He's working to bring every person to him. And that goes on uh, on every square inch of planet Earth every single day. And then the second thing that I marvel at is how hard God works to keep this great diversity called the body of Christ uh, united so we share one Lord. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, I have found that the more spiritual a man is, the less denominational he is. By that he meant where there is a concern as we grow in Christ's likeness, as we grow more and more like the Father, we care as much about Christians on the other side of the world or on another denomination or non-denomination as we do the people that we're fellowshipping with on a weekly basis. And maturity has that kind of an attitude toward the whole body of Christ. Paul said we share one faith. Every other Christian in this world has put their trust in Jesus for salvation just the way we did. They bent their knee and they prayed the sinner's prayer just the way that I did. We share the same baptism. We share the same God and the same heavenly father with all believers. And we share all of that with every single Christian, whatever their tribe or their tongue or their nation. And it just feels good to know that and to hear that. And it's good to put our focus upon all of these infinitely greater things that unite us as Christians rather than upon all the smaller things that can divide us. I think it's important to understand and mention here that this unity among is a unity that the unity that Jesus is describing here is a unity among 
true Christians, those who are born again. It's not a unity based upon compromising God's word for the sake of unity. That's not the unity that Jesus is talking about here. In this prayer, Jesus isn't praying for everyone in the whole world. He's praying for Christians. He's praying for his disciples. And he's very careful to define what the characteristics are of one who is truly his disciple. All the way in verse 6, as he's speaking about the disciples in prayer, he declared that they belong to the Father. In verse 6, again through verse 8, Jesus had manifested the Father's name to them over the course of three and a half year public ministry, and they had received the truth of Jesus' revelation of the Father. Further, Jesus says they had believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Most of the religious establishment of the day didn't do that. They did that. They had kept the Father's word. Obedience now marked their life to the word of God. And then in verse 20, Jesus describes us as he's praying for us, for them and for us here as those who believe in Jesus. They've trusted in him for salvation. So they must believe that we are sinners in need of a savior and that salvation is found in Christ alone and through faith in him. And then in verse 20, he speaks of this group that he's praying for as those who have believed the apostles doctrine, God's word given by the Holy Spirit. So here is a group of people who've given proper authority to the word of God in their lives. They're in submission to the word of God. So why make a big deal of this? Why in the world is that important? Because this passage is a favorite of what is called an ecumenical movement and other things that's always going on. And some of that is good, but a lot of it isn't good. But there's always this segment of ecumenicalism that calls on everyone to unite in answer to Jesus's desire here, even if it means compromising his word or compromising his teaching or his standard. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. There is a context to this prayer. There are qualifying statements made in this prayer. He's not calling us to unify with anything and everything or anyone and everyone at all costs. To unify around what's false or what's plainly declared to be sinful in the word of God, what the Bible clearly forbids. And yet at the same time, we must understand that concerning those who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, they believe on the Lord Jesus, they believe in the authority of God's word, are in submission to the word of God, that there should be a unity toward them and every effort made toward unity. But let me also say that not every Christian is going to understand the scriptures the same way on non-essential issues. That is not a basis for unity. There are many other churches in this community and beyond that believe different things about non-essential areas of the scriptures. They're wrong as all get out, but they believe them. There are some passages in the Bible where you look and, as Chuck Smith says, you know, he puts them in the more information needed category where there's just legitimately different views related to what that passage might mean, but doesn't affect a person's eternity or the quality of their Christian life now. But that's the way that it is. And there's that recognition that we're not we don't unify because we all believe everything about spiritual gifts or about the Holy Spirit or about, you know, different aspects of, of the Christian life. As this famous saying in history, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and then all things, charity, which brings us to our next point. And another key to our unity is love, Jesus said in verse 26. The very love that God the Father has for Jesus. You think about that. How much do you think the Father loves Jesus? Now you try and explain that in two hours. You can't explain that. No human language is up to that. The very love that God the Father has for Jesus is available to us by the Holy Spirit. In order to love the body of Christ in the same way and to be a unifying influence 
in the body of Christ in answer to Jesus' prayer here. And that's amazing that that's available to us. Peter wrote, and he said, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover little tiny sins. And he said, love will cover a multitude of sins. I don't like that word multitude and sins being together. I don't like the possibility that there could be an individual that would sin against me in a category described as multitude and that I could then continue to love that person. And so often when we've been sinned against by another Christian, even after they've confessed their sin to us and even after they've asked for their, our forgiveness, we can continue to hold, I think, even nurture hurt and bitterness over the issue and thinking that the reason that it continues to live in our heart is because that, that was a violation against me that I'll tell you and we can work this thing up gigantic in our minds and create a reality that isn't even there. And we think that this thing lives on inside of us and it's so fresh all the time and it's so big all the time because that's, their sin was so gigantic when in fact it lives on very often for a reason that has nothing to do with them but because of our lack of God's love for the body of Christ. It's not always true. I don't say it's always true of every circumstance. But very often, this lack of love is behind this kind of thing. And I think it's good to remember that Jesus paid an enormous price, and we're going to watch it over the coming weeks now, an indescribable price, not only that we might be a saved people, but that we might be a unified people. And then when I take the sins that are committed against me or the slights that are committed against me and I put them up against the cross and the price that he paid for us not only to be saved but to be unified, I'll tell you, I can't speak for you. I, I feel that the injustices that I'm willing to to make a mountain out of, end up looking very, very petty and very, very small. And it does something very, very good inside of me to see it in a proper perspective and then to let those things go. And finally, one of the greatest influences we can experience for maintaining unity with other Christians is a deep, deep concern for the unsaved. And Jesus speaks about that in verse 21 and then in verse, again in verse 23. And you notice what Jesus says in this regard. Verse 21. First, he wants us to walk in unity as Christians in order that the world may believe or know that Jesus was sent by God. There's something about the unity of the body of Christ that when it's seen by the unsaved world, it becomes a very powerful proof and testimony to the fact that Jesus was sent by God the Father. And then notice in verse 23, he wants us to walk in unity so that the world would witness the Father's love in us. And as a result of seeing the Father's love in us, then, then desire to experience and partake in that love for themselves. There's a quality of life that comes out of this unity that when the world sees it, when they see the whole world fragmenting and falling apart before their very eyes, with a lesser diversity... And they look over at the body of Christ and they see an almost infinite diversity, certainly the complete diversity of all of mankind, all of fallen mankind represented in it. And yet it holds, 
It's unified. It's loving. It continues. It's stable. It's solid. It's sure. They are forced to conclude that the only way that that thing can exist in the midst of this greater thing falling apart is that it's from God. That it's supernatural in its origin. And that realization then becomes important to them to then begin to investigate the God that we claim has saved us and is the head of this gigantic, diverse thing called the body of Christ. And now they're on their way to being saved themselves and adding their diversity into the mix. Creating more work for God, but it's work he loves to do. I think it's sobering in a very, very healthy way to realize that people's openness to the gospel and even to salvation itself is tied to this very issue of Christian unity. And surely that enough, that concern is enough to motivate any Christian to avoid Unnecessary division. Some division occurs because we have no control over the other side of it. I think that God is the only one who watches every day. It is the only one who is fully aware of the damage that is done to his purposes in this world. And to his kingdom. Due to the infighting and the disharmony among his people. I think about the city that I come from before I came to Modesto. Huge church split occurred in that city. A little bit after we left. Our leaving had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Twenty-five years later, it is still talked about and it is on the In the lives of many people, it is still at the tip of their tongue. The damage that is that I would never, ever want to be the instigator of of a of starting a church split. And I'm not talking about a local situation here, by the way, not in this church or the community. I would never want to have my name associated with that. I'm capable of it. That's what I hate about my flesh. In Bill McDonald's quote, it's in me. But I say, Lord, I I do not, by the grace of God and the answer to your prayer, I never want to be on that side or any side of something like that, where for decades later in a community, the damage has been done that is so great that they're still talking about it. And it's real. But it's not just real in terms of churches and dozens of people or hundreds of people or thousands of people. The damage is done on a much smaller level. It's done on an individual level as well. I remember reading years ago a story that Warren Wearsby told, a true story concerning his first pastorate. And I could tell stories today, but it's safer to tell the stories from somebody else and still make the same point. The moment people realize that you and I are Christians, they're watching us. They start to watch our lives. That's just the way that it is. And they start to watch our lives and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a wonderful thing. As long as they see the right thing. And so we're people who are are watched and we're watched and people are listening to us and they're watching us. Not just when we're sharing our faith, but they're also watching our lives and being impacted by our lives, by what we say and don't say in the course of a normal day. Warren Wearsby said that there was this wonderful woman who attended that first pastor of his, and the husband did not attend. She invited him and invited him and invited him, and he would just never, never, ever come to the church. He never forbid her from coming, but he wanted nothing to do with, with church at all himself. 
And Warren Beersby wrote that it wouldn't be until later that he would learn the reason why. He said where this man worked, there were a couple of Christians who did nothing but talk about and put down what was wrong with other Christians. And it so disgusted this non-believer that he didn't want anything to do with it. And you think about the price, the terrible, terrible price that that wife paid and that family paid for the gossip and the slander and the disunity of those Christians at work. And they probably didn't even realize the damage that was being done. But God knows it's being done. And I'll say it again. I don't look down on those guys or those gals that were doing that at work. All of that is in me. That's why I need the warning from the scriptures to speak to me and to speak to us of the importance of something that we lose sight of in terms of how important it is. But God never loses sight of it. Some people watch our lives and they're looking for faults and they're looking for a reason to reject Christ and all those things. But there's a lot of people, and it's the reason we're still in this world, who are still looking at Christians and they're looking to see something different, something supernatural about those people. Some other kingdom, some other something that exists in this world apart from what is falling apart and unraveling before their very eyes. God wants us to be a watched people. But again, he wants people to see certain things when they do watch us. And it's important that people see and hear a concern for unity in our lives. I think about the stakes, how incredibly high the stakes are here concerning unity, how much is riding on it. And I think it's good just to take a moment, always good to let it just take a moment and let it freshly sink in how big of a deal this is to God. One day our unity is going to be perfect and it's going to be complete. And one day it's going to be absolutely effortless when we all stand in that heavenly scene. As Jesus prays in verse 24. But in the meantime, sometimes it's going to cost us something to maintain unity in the body of Christ. But whatever the cost, it's worth it in order to be used by the Father to answer Jesus' prayer here by being an influence for unity in the body of Christ. Each of us has an individual responsibility to be an influence for unity among God's people and to demonstrate that unity before an unsaved world. Let's stand together and we'll pray.